Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is Texan horror, and we're joined by guest Brennan LaFaro, who is an author and a host of the Dead Headspace podcast. Let's get spooky. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. And here we go. Brennan, how are you today? Hey, William. It's, uh, it's really cool to be here. I love, I love the idea behind it, and I'm uh, honored to be uh, in your original line of guests. Inaugural might be a better word there. Yeah, I, I like it. Inaugural is a great word. Uh, it's, our, <laughs> it's our rookie season out here. I want to start this episode off by just kind of giving you the stage for a second to talk about who you are. Uh, what's your niche in the horror community? Are there any works coming out that you want to pitch to us for a minute? Who are sure. you? <laughs> Sure, I'd love to. I'll try not to, uh, you know, take the stage for too long. But uh, I am, as you mentioned, uh, an author. I have uh, one book out at the moment uh, called Slattery Falls. It is the first in a trilogy. So that originally came out last July. It was re-released in a revised edition with an, if I do say so myself, unbelievable new cover that uh, Donnie Goodman did. Um, And the sequel to that is going to be out in December. And then there'll be uh, the third and final book in the series that'll come out uh, mid-2023. By the time, or around the time this airs, there is a Western coming out called Noose. And I am super excited about that one. Uh, It's really my first attempt at writing a true horror Western. Um, And I kind of got carried away with it, if I'm honest, because I wrote that uh, novella. It's about, you know, 120, 130 pages. And I had so much fun kind of creating this small Arizona town, uh, Texas adjacent, I suppose we could say, um, that I just kind of kept going with it. So I've got um, I've got a story coming out called Come and Take My Hand. It'll actually be released a little bit before Noose. It'll come out sometime in August, and that'll actually be free to download. Uh, people can check that out on BookFunnel. Um and if you don't know how to access all that, you know, you can go to brennanlafaro.com or sign up for my mailing list and I'll, you know, have all that ready to go. Uh, but it'll have the first chapter of Noose in there as well. So people can see if that's up their alley and uh, not spend a dime doing it. And then I've got a couple other uh, Western stories coming out in anthologies throughout the fall. So, I mean, you, you mentioned my niche. I feel like I'm finding it and trying not to get typecast in it all at once. <laughs> Well, if, if you're going to get typecast into one niche, that's a really good, like, very popular one right now. I know. Is Noose coming out through Death's Head Press? No, Noose is coming out through uh, Dark Lit Press, which is uh, owned by Andrew, the book dad. Um, and he has just been so cool to work with. You know, he's the um, third press that I've worked with in putting out a book. And his research into marketing is just so I, I can't even imagine how many hours of his day he spends running numbers and just trying to figure out what works and what doesn't and he's got such a good handle on it again the the whole free story through book funnel to bring in readers um and uh 
you know, just kind of pump up numbers and get my book in the hands of people who otherwise might not, you know, even be aware it exists. It's just been awesome. I have nothing but good things to say about working with them. Yeah. And beyond just being a master of the craft of marketing, like Andrew's a really great dude also. Um, yeah. I, I was talking to him about trying to get some promotion stuff figured out with Kill or Be Killed when it was coming out. And he just, he bent over backwards to help me, like went way beyond the call of what I was even asking him to do. And I love the guy. He's great. So that's a perfect way to describe, you know, the, the way he acts towards, you know, supporting independent and small press horror is bending over backwards to, you know, get eyes on books. Yeah. So it, when, when news comes out from Darklit Press, make sure to go, go support that, support Brennan and support Andrew and support the whole, the whole shindig. Um, I do want to circle back a little bit farther, though, to what you were saying uh, with your first book, Slattery Falls. I know I read it a couple of months ago, I guess it is at this point. I think I read it in April, but it is fantastic. Um, if you are into the ghost hunter kind of shows that are on TV and want to read a, a really fun novelization of that, go go dive into Slattery Falls. Um had you planned for that to be a trilogy when you first wrote it or is the trilogy going <laughs> out of it now? All right. So, I mean, that's a super good question. Um, uh, no, uh, originally I didn't know what the hell it was doing. I mean, that, that was the first thing really that I ever tried to write, you know, in at, at age 33, I, I, you know, I've been a reader for a long time, an avid reader. And I guess I always just kind of assumed that, in order to be a writer, in order to kind of create in this medium, you had to have a certain set of skills that I didn't have. Um, and, you know, one day I just decided I wanted to try it. So I grabbed a notebook and a pen and I wrote the first, you know, couple pages of that. And truth be told, what you read isn't that much different than, you know, the original draft. Hopefully it's cleaned up a little bit and a little uh, tighter and smoother. But um, to get back to your question, no, it was a standalone book. And you know, I won't spoil it, but I will say that I wouldn't call it an open, open ending, but there's some ambiguity to it. Um, call it leaving the door open a crack. Um, and I wound up having a conversation with the original press that put it out, um, who has since gone out of business. And at the time they said, it's, you know, doing good enough numbers that we would be interested in putting out a, a sequel and, you know, a third, if you want, you know, we'll talk timeline, but we would commit to doing that. So I started writing book two, finished it, uh, got eyes on it, you know, pretty much. In fact, no, I, I had submitted it to uh, that press, uh, Silver Shamrock, when they went out of business. And, you know, it just hadn't gone into the editing phase or anything like that. Uh, so essentially, I, I wound up with two books in a trilogy, one previously published and, you know, and a wide open door for a third and no place to put them. But uh, Crossroad Press, um, who does a phenomenal job and gives a home to lots of lots of people. I mean, they, they've published like hundreds upon hundreds of books, but it's still pretty cool to say that I'm, you know, at the same publisher as like Brian Keene and Clive Barker and Edward Lee and all these big names. Um, they were very generous in offering to republish Slattery, let me revise it, uh, make a couple little minor changes to line up better with the sequel. And uh, 
allow me to put the second and third book out with them and pretty much choose my own schedule to do that. Uh, like I said, I just, I can't say enough good things about how easy and generous they've been to work with. Nice. And yeah, I think you mentioned earlier that the new cover by Donnie Goodman looks great. Donnie does awesome work. I know just watching watching his stuff on Twitter. Oh my gosh, here's our perfect segue. Donnie Goodman with his uh, Leatherface photoshops going on for what, 597,000 days now? Something um, like that. Yeah, he does some really cool covers. And I, I had fun seeing him like producing yours and seeing that all come out together. Uh, that was a really good segue. It sounded like it was planned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so let's spin off and start talking about Leatherface and Chainsaws and Texan Horror. Let's uh, do it. So uh, first question I want to kind of begin all these episodes with is if this is a whole podcast about investigating these horror tropes and how they're going across a bunch of different mediums, let's start just by defining the trope. So what do you think of when you think of Texan Horror? How did a state get its own like iconic brand of the horror market? Now, I, I think that to a degree, I, I mean, we're talking Texas horror and we're going we're gonna to stick as closely as we can to that. But I think it's an expansion of Southern horror um, because, I mean, Texas is so big that you're not just dealing with, you know, one uh, type of uh, nat natural fixture, I guess. You've got your desert, you've got your... Um, you know, when I think of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's not quite desert, but it's very dry. It's very barren. And then you've got your, you know, East Texas bordering on Louisiana uh, swamp country. And it's all Texas horror. And one thing it all brings together is it's hot as hell. Um, it's and, and more than just hot, because that's, you know, not by itself horrifying. It's oppressive. So, you know, before you even get your characters in danger, uh, before you take anything else into consideration, the weather is already fighting against you. Um, and I think a lot of the best examples of Texas horror not only use that heat, but the kind of grime that comes with it. Everything is sweaty. Everything is sticky. When you watch a movie on screen, it smells um, you can almost imagine what it smells like. Um, and, you know, a lot of the movies that we're going to talk about uh, do that really nicely with sometimes um, when there's no music in the background, you'll just you won't even see flies, but you'll hear flies. And, you know, who among us doesn't associate that with some sort of whether it's decaying meat or shit or, you know, it's it's if flies are there, it's not going to smell pleasant, you know, easy as that. So what about you? Uh, so with Texas Horror, like you were saying, kind of the first thing that I think of, the first thing that jumps out at me is just the visuals of people dripping sweat. And I think grimy is the perfect word for it. Um, th there's just this heat drenched yellow filter over everything. Everybody looks like they're about to collapse from dehydration. And it's, it is a setting that is trying to kill you. So that just automatically feeds just the horror element that's playing out here. Also, I think with Texas, for better or worse, there is this stigma with Texans themselves where walking into a movie like this, you kind of know the type of people that 
are going to be villainized in here. This isn't saying that all Texans are like this. This isn't saying that this is even a true stereotype of Texans, but uh, the, there is this there is this character that comes out of Texas that they think they're bigger than life. Uh, the, they think that the the rules maybe don't apply for them. Uh, and maybe there's some historical context here for where Texas used to be its own nation and they got to call their own shots. And uh, maybe there's still this, this mentality down there in the state of, well, if things start going sideways, we can do that again. We can just leave and we'll go do our own thing. But all of the villains in this, in these universes really play off of those stereotypes and they play off the, of those kind of external perceptions of their people. So we're not mm. actually going to dive into the Michael Bay remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I guess it's worth noting Arlie Ermey's character in there with this vile, corrupt, awful sheriff that's going to murder everybody, probably. <laughs> he kind of highlights everything I'm thinking of here, and we see a bunch of other characters throughout these movies, throughout these books, throughout these everything else, kind of playing off that too. The cannibals in their house, the laws don't apply to us. Uh, the I don't want to dive into spoilers quite yet. I guess we can, <laughs> whatever. Uh, the, the old people in X that go around murdering everybody else. There's just this perception that what happens here is going to stay here. And this is all happening in some isolated vacuum that these people can't escape from. And that all just comes from the setting. And that's wild to me. Yeah. And, you know, you threw out the word isolated and I have a feeling that word is going to come up a lot in this discussion because, you know, you, you said like the law doesn't apply to them. And I think it's more a matter of not being above the law, but being outside the law. An author who uh, we are, are not necessarily going to talk about today, who does a gr does great Southern horror is Robert McCammon. And in his novel, Gone South, you know, a big, a big part of it, and it's, this is in Louisiana Bayou, and a big part of it takes place in this shanty town for lack of better words and it's just completely outside the law you know that if something happens there the police aren't gonna come if you get out and you go get the police they're not gonna follow you back because this place just exists under its own control and i think there's a lot of that in some of these you know texas horror movies books whatever is that these people are so far away from civilized society uh that sounded extremely judgmental but <laughs> so let's just, let's just say society in general that they've kind of gotten used to the fact that nobody's going to come check up on them um and they kind of can get away with it you know they're not they're not getting away with crimes because they're outthinking the police or because they're clever they're getting away with it because nobody gives a shit to come check on them because they can for for the most part and i think another thing that deserves discussion is most of the reason that we can kind of place these you know villains antagonists whatever you want to call them squarely into that box and that it looks so odd to us is because most of these stories, if not every single one of them, uh, follows the viewpoint of outsiders. The way that you're going to really contrast just how different this lifestyle, this area, this part of the country, the people in it are, is by taking something that 90% of the audience, if not more, is familiar with it and, and looking through those unjaded eyes. Uh, and I think that's kind of a key to what makes this click. 
And with that in mind, let's go ahead and talk for just a second about why we're talking about Texas horror now. I think this is a good, good kind of lead into that discussion. Um, so I'm from Georgia, and I know you're you're from Massachusetts, right? Yeah. Are you from Boston or the Massachusetts greater area? Massachusetts. I'm really closer to Providence than I am to Boston, and I've lived there my whole life. So I mean, I. You, you at least are from, you're from Georgia. You're from, you know, you, you could drive to Texas in less than a day if you wanted. I'm the one that has no business here. But I'll tell you, I have a fascination with Southern horror, as I kind of already mentioned. And I think uh, a big part of that has to do with some of the ideas we've already talked about, the idea that it's isolated, that if you need help, it's not readily available. And that's terrifying, you know? Uh, Regardless of the specifics of whatever horror you or your character get into, uh, the speed at which help can arrive definitely plays into just how terrifying that situation is. But I think the South, beyond having, you know, an obviously dark history that plays into uh, the fiction that comes out of there, (laughs) the real life that comes out of there as well, uh, it has this air of mystery, almost like it reminds me a little bit of the ocean, of how there's just so much of it that there are going to be pockets of it that are relatively unknown to, you know, the, the greater populace, if you will. And, and I think that's fascinating. The fact that, you know, you may, you know, you think of the South and you think of Atlanta and Georgia, but there's pockets in that state, there's pockets in Texas where you're going to meet people that you would not meet in Massachusetts. That might be the best description of the South that I've heard in a long time is that it's just this ocean. So yeah, a a couple of more kind of tidbits about me. I'm, I'm from Georgia now, but I was an army brat growing up. So I've bounced around the Southeast a lot for whatever reason, my dad always got stationed somewhere in the Southeast. So I've lived in Louisiana, which is Texas adjacent, but not actually Texas. And I've lived in Kansas which is functionally Texas, like with the barren landscape and nothing happening out there. But you're right, in Georgia, whenever whenever my wife and I like go on vacation or something and we're trying to drive down through South Georgia, you reach these big pockets of land where it's like, if we ran out of gas right now, we'd be screwed. Like there is nothing anywhere around here. We haven't seen a car for the last like 30 minutes. Like, I don't know where the closest gas station is. Um, it gets so, so, so rural still, even, even in this day and age when we've got cell phones, we've got highways, we've got everything else. We'll talk about the, the latest Texas Chainsaw Massacre eventually, but I, I think that is one of the things that it tries to get across well, is even in this modern day and age, there's still these areas and these pockets where shit can hit the fan. Mm. So do we want to start talking about uh, the movies? Yeah, sure. Let's go. All right. Full spoiler warning here. Uh, We are about to talk about the following movies and books. We are going to talk about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. Go full Toby Hooper with it. Uh, We are going to talk about Keelan Patrick Burke's book, Ken. We are going to talk about Netflix's Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake? Requel? Whatever the Requel, legacy sequel, whatever the kids are calling it these days. Yeah. Uh, And we are going to talk about X, though. Uh, So if you want to avoid spoilers for any of those four uh, content, 
contents, uh, mediums, uh, any of those four mediums, uh, now would be a great time to turn off the podcast. Uh, go watch them because they are all worth watching or reading for one reason or another. Uh, and then come back to us. We will wait, but we won't actually wait right now. So 1974, Toby Hooper rolls out this movie called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Do you remember the first time you watched this movie? Here's the thing. I don't, because I watched it the other night to prep for this. And I would, at a guess, it's been a minimum of 15 to 20 years since I watched that movie. And I forgot just how fucking weird it gets. (laughs) (laughs) But there's also elements that I think I appreciated a lot more this time around. One of them being the cinematography. It's some of the shots in that, especially like the static shots, um, are just really stunning, really gorgeous, really well done and almost make up for the atrocious acting. Um, It's, um, I I think it's worth noting that the opening of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, it it just kind of plays up on so many of those things that we talked about earlier. It's slimy, it's sweaty, it's hot, it smells, it's gross. There's, you know, bodies that have been excavated from the graveyard and they look, they look like Sam Raimi dug them, dug them up himself. Um, they're just grotesque. Uh, and, you know, I, I also mentioned earlier that a lot of times it'll, they, they'll, you know, kind of use the sound of, of insects buzzing to great effect. And I think one of the reasons that works so well is just because of how sparse the soundtrack is. Um, it did, you know, it's got that kind of famous creaking door type thing. Sounds like you're inside a slaughterhouse. <laughs> I'd like to hear a few of your thoughts on it, though. Yeah, um, I, I do love that there's not really much of a soundtrack going on here. Um, you, you don't have the famous ki 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 ma 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 from Friday the 13th. There's nothing to pull you out of the idea that this could be real, this could be happening. Uh, it, it makes that promise at the beginning of the film based on based on true events. And that's not really honest, but whatever, it sets the stage well. Um, and then from there on out, all of the happenings here are grotesque and wild, but somehow still probable. Uh, so I, I feel like the lack of a soundtrack really helps feed that. And then when things do start happening in the background, like you're talking about with the flies, with the screams coming from the basement, it really draws your attention to it a lot more than I think it would be in a, in a more productioned up sort of a film. You mentioned that the acting is terrible and it is, um, except for the scenes where they are in utter distress and freaking out because Toby Hooper was that director that made everybody method act, whether they wanted to or not, uh, dragging them out into the middle of these godforsaken sets and having them dripping sweat. There are all these horror stories about how miserable of a shoot this was. So when the actors are screaming their heads off, they're genuinely screaming their heads off. They want out. And that makes this movie very hard to watch, kind of similar to the Blair Witch Project. We've got an episode Uh, with Brianna Morgan, where we talk about this for a second. But Blair Witch Project, as great of a movie as it is, I have a hard time watching it just because it's so grating how at each other's throats the actors get, and it feels so genuine, their hatred for each other by the end of the film. 
It's just like, I don't want to watch this. I don't want to be in this headspace. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre original one does that exact same thing to me. You walk away from this movie feeling so sweaty. You dislike pretty much all of the characters and actively want them to die, but maybe not like this. Uh, and yeah. it, it's a very violent movie. It is a very difficult movie. I think it is so famous because of those two aspects, not necessarily because the script was anything mind-blowing and not necessarily because the acting was anything mind-blowing, but because it came across as so honestly grotesque. I think that's such a good point. It's not one I considered before because if you, you know, especially when we get down to, to Sally, um, the screaming is over the top and it's obnoxious, but at the same time, it's realistic. You know, you may on the surface know that there's not that anybody within, you know, earshot is against you, but that's not going to keep you from screaming your, your throat raw uh, just because it, you know, annoys the audience, um, which is definitely something you would see. You know, there's going to be screaming in other horror movies, but it might not be so elongated, uh, so stretched out, go on for so long. Um, yeah, that's a cool point that I hadn't considered before. Going back to kind of the silence thing, I, I think the other thing it does is it, it really ratchets up the tension. You know, there's no swelling music to tell you that there's about to be a jump scare or a jump scare fake out or anything like that. Um, and even though, you know, I like I said, it's been a long time since I watched this. Even though I knew that when they got to that first rundown house, that that wasn't, you know, the farmhouse. Watching them explore it was, you know, like I'm, I'm sitting there just waiting for something to pop out, for somebody to pop out. The, um, the scene where they're in the van with the hitchhiker, oh my God, like what a, that, that, that guy was crazy as hell. And, you know, again, questionable acting, but you cannot deny how effective, uh, and on edge, that scene makes you. Yeah, and then even once they get into the house, like it it never lets up. I remember the first time, the first time I watched this was later in high school. I had watched a bunch of horror movies and I don't wanna say I got desensitized to it, but throughout my high school years was when I was finally allowed to have access to horror movies, as awful as that sounds. Um, so, so I started binging through all of them and I kind of got to the house in this movie and was like, all right, when is this whole thing going to kick off? And even when I'm looking for it, when Leatherface throws open that door for the first time mm. and grabs his first victim, pulls him in and just slams the door shut. I remember my first reaction was just, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> Like what? There, there was no like loud screeching musical cue there. There was no like lead up to that. Like, okay, everybody hold your popcorn a little bit tighter. It just fucking happens and they're gone. I like how effective that is too. This, this idea that even when stuff's happening, it's still not going to kind of break its, break its mirage at all. Um, it, it, it's just going to let you process the horror in your own right. Mm. Now you mentioned also the uh, <laughs> the tyranny of Toby Hooper, and I, I think that uh, we probably wouldn't get to any of the other movies if we if we went through every story. But the one that's definitely worth repeating for anybody who doesn't know it is the dinner scene at the end. Oh. Uh, taking into account that you know it, I think I think it was something like 110 degrees outdoors 
uh, add in the lights, the, the filming lights, uh, the food rotting under those lights, the fact that once uh, Grandpa got into makeup, he said, I'm not fucking doing this again. We're, we're knocking out all my scenes tonight. Um, and, you know, the actors will describe basically there's no acting in that scene. Everybody's just on the deep end or off the deep end, rather, um, to the point where, uh, you know, the one that kind of the story, the part of that that stuck with me is uh, they were having trouble when um, when they slice Sally's finger and try to, you know, dribble it into grandpa's mouth. They're having trouble getting that to line up. So uh, Gunnar Hansen cut her just straight up cut her. And that's you're looking at real blood. And oh, man. I, I guess he got what he wanted, but what a what a way. <laughs> yeah, how to never get another actor for your future projects again. Um, uh, it's just so, so, back to your word, grimy. The whole thing, like the movie itself, the making of the movie, it's just so grimy. But Sally gets out of it. Uh, her actually cut finger and all. So... <laughs> Um, I, I want to try to transition now, unless, do you have any more thoughts about the original Ch Texas Chainsaw Massacre before we get to Ken? No, we can move on. Okay. I think what Keelan Patrick Burke does really well in his book, Ken, is he takes all of this trauma that we just suffered through watching the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he expands on it. Uh, he, he follows the characters that survive into the aftermath. Which is a cool thing that I don't think even any sequels really do particularly well. Like none that jumped to mind for me, at least dealing with the emotional, mental repercussions of the first movie. You'll get some throwaway lines where Jamie Lee Curtis is laying in a hospital bed saying evil has to die tonight. <laughs> but 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 you don't you don't have to sit with it. You don't have to sit with the dead families of the people that died, maybe for one scene just so they can say they did it. But you never see that as the focus treatment of books or movies outside of Keelan Patrick Burke. Uh, mm. so, so I thought what he did with his book, Kin, was really novel because he doesn't literally set it after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but he sets it after absurdly similar events as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He's, he's clearly trying to do a call and response to that movie with this. Uh, and you get Sally or in his book's case, Claire, escaping the madhouse, finding help, getting home, and then realizing that this family is still out there and she really wants to, or I guess wants to isn't quite the right pitch here, but needs to go back to this house and finish the job so that that doesn't happen to anybody else. You've also got a second character, Pete, who is the brother of one of the deceased, and he wants to go get revenge on this. Uh, he wants to go there and, and deal some frontier justice. Finch, 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 that's right. So, so Finch is gonna go deal this frontier justice. And the book kind of tracks those two characters and the family itself on their way back to uh, kind of another showdown of sorts. So I know you just read this book. It's probably a little fresher on your mind than mine because I read it, I think, a year and a half ago or something like that at this point. But what was your big takeaway from the book? Did you like it? What did it do right? What did it do wrong? What you so, got? I mean, first, first of all, I'm, I'm so thrilled. That, th that thing's been sitting on my shelf for two or three years. And it's every time I want to read it, there's you know something I've got to read uh, for, for the Deadhead Space podcast that takes precedence. And it's 
it, this was a lovely excuse to pick it up and and read it and it was it was really cool you're absolutely right that it is you know a spiritual successor to texas chainsaw massacre um and you know you mentioned none of the sequels came at it quite like this and it's because it in my opinion, the, the 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 movies always need fodder. They always need characters to run into chainsaws. Um, and with this one, it's the fodder is dead before you know page one. You get some flashbacks and stuff like that, but you get all that. You know, you you understand exactly how nasty and vicious this family is, um, and you get the the gruesome gory grimy bits of you know being trapped in this little alabama shed in the in the excessive heat but you also get that character ex exploration that sometimes these movies are missing and i would even expand that to uh, the merrill family themselves um in, in if we're comparing it to the 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we don't know much about that uh, the Sawyer family uh, when we leave them. And frankly, I think that you know works in its favor. We just we, we all we know about this family is what we've seen on screen. But the Merrill family is they're the heroes in their own story, and that's how the best villains should be. Is even if they are despicable, awful people, the actions they're taking are in their mind right um and you know it's it's a little loose that they believe they're doing god's work by uh you know killing any sinners who wander off this far into the country but again it it, it very simply and uh firmly establishes that uh you know depth of character i suppose um, and the fact that there's conflict within that family, uh, you get to see kind of the kids that are raised to think this way versus the kids that have, you know, seen some things and be and and they're starting to think, gee, maybe that's not quite right. It, it adds a lot of depth that you don't always get in slasher movies, because let's face it, a lot of these Texas horror movies, they are variations on the slasher movie. Um, as far as the the plot of Ken, I I liked the whole book. I really did. I do think that the first third or so was the strongest. And I think that a lot of that has to do with that's what I came for, uh, is that brutality and that, oh, my God, who the fuck are these people and why are they doing such horrible things? Um, I, I wouldn't have minded spending a little less time in Ohio. Um, and wherever it was that Pete, who is the boy who uh, kind of rescues Claire and ferries her back to her family to the hospital and all that, uh, the the kind of second the storyline with his um, not mother but mother figure, it wasn't bad, but I don't think the book would have lost that much if it cut it out. Uh, and the return was really cool. So look, give give us a little bit about it. Yeah, I I liked what you were saying there at the beginning because I hadn't really thought about how I don't want to call it slow because that gives the that gives the wrong impression, but how intentional the first third of the book was with not jumping straight back into the bloodbath. I think Keelan Patrick Burke either self-published this or independently published it, uh, or uh, published it with a small press, one of the two of those. 
like the flexibility that he took with that, that maybe you wouldn't have if this was a big budget Hollywood movie or some, some big, like big five publisher uh, publishing company. He got to write the story that he wanted to do. So instead of having to open with a big bloodbath, like Hollywood would have called for, he really gave us time to sit with the characters. He, he let us suffer with Claire as she's crawling through the wasteland, trying to get away from this house. Uh, he, he lets us like really sit with her emotions when she gets home. And I, I love hearing you say that the first part of this book was the better part of the book for you because it's all character development. And I feel like a lot of times in stories and in movies, it's the character development that's the first thing to hit the cutting room floor. Um, and then wave two of the book, we, we really start seeing the family doing super messed up stuff again. Uh, especially to the one kid that helped Claire escape and the one kid that's kind of having second thoughts about what's going on with his family. Um, they put him all the way through hell. The mama in bed character is still to this day the grossest thing I've ever read. Possible battle for that title with Nick Cutter's The Troop, but I think mama in bed gets it. He just, he leaned into the disgusting with that. It was fantastic. The cannibalism scenes are great. It, it really finds its feet as it gets going. But I, I thought that those intimate earlier scenes and the earlier chapters of the book, I thought there was something really special and unique in them because we don't see that too often. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's worth noting too, the cannibalism, it, you know, that can be, that can be way too easy uh, for movies and books to lean into that for shock value. Um, but he had reasoning behind it. And again, it ties in with this family being the heroes of their own story is they have, they have a reason for why they, you know, eat people uh, and it's convoluted, but with people who are going to act like this, it would be convoluted if it was logical. We wouldn't know what to make of that. Um, I, I agree with you totally. I think Mama in Bed was grotesque. The the you know talks about the the her back skin fusing to the mattress. You know, uh, just shitting in the bed. Um, just oh, just absolutely horrifying. Um, and you know we're full spoilers. So if you haven't read it get on that or you know maybe you'll be turned off by this but when they when she dies and they sew the sun into her body yeah what the fuck <laughs> um like it, it and again you get you get points there for originality because it's easy to pick this up and say okay this dude wrote you know, this dude likes the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and he decided to just write his version of it. But there are things in there that Toby Hooper didn't dream of uh, that, you know, nobody had nobody's really done it quite like this. There are definitely moments in there uh, that explain why, you know, even though this is self-published, it gets a lot of applause. A lot of people really dig this book and I, I get why. Another thing that you mentioned earlier that I think Keelan Patrick Burke does a cool job with is with the Sawyer family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you don't get a lot of their motivations. You don't get a lot of explanation of their family dynamics or anything like that. And I, I think you kind of alluded to this when you were talking about it. 
a lot of times in horror, that's the creepiest way to do things is you leave that air of mystery around a family and you don't really explain everything because what we can imagine is probably worse than more personally worse than anything the director would have come up with for us. That's another trick that I'm really impressed with Keelan Patrick Burke with in this book is he dares to answer those questions of what was the family dynamic. And when he answers them, it somehow elevates it to be something even worse than we were imagining before. A lot of times when you explain the villain, it, it falls flat and, oh, okay. Uh, Michael Myers is just like the demonic curse of thorn thing. Yeah. Like, no, stop. The shape. Um, I'm so glad you said that because I was trying to figure out how to put that into words. Cause I, I agree with you. I think that um, as a rule, I don't love that. I don't always love that motivation. I like the depth of character, but I do think that, you know, if you characterize um, maybe your protagonists that you don't necessarily need it with the antagonists because it leaves it, it, it makes it more creepy. Um, one of my favorite movies is The Strangers. And oh my gosh, that movie. I think I think it's for, you know, there's two parts of it. One of one of them, I think one of the best scenes in horror movies is when she's chopping up something in the kitchen and one of the strangers appears behind her, just stands there for a minute and then disappears back into the shadows. But that's not related to this. It's just a really cool scene. <laughs> what I'm getting at is I there is no better way that movie could have ended than why are you doing this to us because you were home? That's it. Cut. Um, I, I, I don't, you, you could have workshopped a thousand other answers to that question and they all fall flat compared to because you were home. Yeah. I, I and I, th I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre does it good and can doesn't do it, but, also doesn't suffer from you know monologuing villains and anything like that yeah there, there's multiple ways to skin a cat in the horror genre or if we're keeping it relevant there's multiple ways to skin mama um there we go. <laughs> awful um, <laughs> i i think the the total ambiguity works in texas chainsaw massacres uh favor and i think the explanation works in keelan patrick burke's favor here and, and it doesn't have to be either or. Like, th this is a really cool call and response with that sort of an approach, I think. Mm -hmm. but and then, I mean, just to, to, to kind of speak to that, yeah. um, I, I think most people would agree that the ambiguity works for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there's a reason that when we're discussing which Texas horror movies uh, we're going to talk about, the uh, Leatherface prequel never came up. <laughs> <laughs> right. We didn't need that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think this is a really good segue now to talking about the Netflix requel that came out last year. This year? Mm -hmm. What is time anymore? I think it was this year. I think it was like February or something like that. Oh my gosh, the pandemic broke me. Yeah. <laughs> time doesn't exist. Um, okay, so or the, the one that came out this year. Um, as, as good as the original did with its ambiguity, and as good as Keelan Patrick Burke did with explaining all of the motivations and really elaborating on this story, that was my big gripe with the Netflix requel was it didn't even attempt to do any characterization, not of Leatherface, not of the main character's protagonists, not even of Sally, who they brought back for God knows what reason. They just kind of threw a bunch of bodies out there and said, all right, slice them. 
And for that, it does a great job. There are lots of bodies hitting the floor in very creative ways here. And it's kind of fun for that. But as far as expanding on this universe that people had kind of come to know and love, it didn't do itself any favors. Uh, did you like the requel? <laughs> Let me yes and no. You before yes I and no. too much. <laughs> I thought it was a fun movie. Uh, I thought I liked the fact that it was like 80 minutes. Um, I yeah, and, and I'm not even being flippant about that. Like, oh, it sucked. I'm glad it was short. Uh, I, I think that just like, you know, the novella works so nicely for horror fiction. I think the 80 minute movie works nicely for horror movies. And where I'm at with it is, you know, I, I, I already said a couple times, it's been a long time since I watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first one. Uh, this is a series that I like it, but I'm not like a super fan or anything like that. And I think that if I was, I would absolutely despise this movie. Um, it reminds me, uh, I can't even think of the subtitle for it, but the last Die Hard movie they made, um, uh, I am about 90% sure that they took a random action script that you know sounded interesting and they put John McClane in it. And, and I'm not even and I'm not even saying that like, oh, it was so bad that seems like I'm pretty sure that's actually what they did yes. is they basically just said, I don't we don't think we can sell this movie necessarily unless we have a strong lead. What if we put Bruce Willis and just call him John? Um, because it was so far away from what made the early diehard movies good. Uh, and that's what this movie reminded me of. It's It felt like they had a slasher script and they said, well, what if we have, what if we, what if we put a mask on this guy, call him Leatherface and, you know, oh, and he peels this lady's face off because why not? That's what he's supposed to do. Um, and, you know, as, as far as your query as, you know, you don't know why Sally showed up. She showed up because they brought Jamie Lee Curtis back to Halloween. And I dare you to find me another reason. You know, it's it, that that's it's as simple as that. And they they didn't even try to do it the right way with her. They gave her literally two scenes, I think. Mm. Introduce her, then kill her. Yep. That's all she's in this movie for is one moment of pulling a shotgun on Leatherface and then just dying. Like, all yeah. right, we're done. You you made your cameo appearance. Move along. <laughs> I think you're right. If they had just left this as the Louisiana Hedge Clipper Massacre or whatever it was to start <laughs> with, I probably would have given it a lot more kind of, I, I wouldn't be as hard on it, on it now. Yeah. But if you're going to take a franchise that's so beloved by horror fans, or at least a horror villain that's so beloved by horror fans, and you're going to slap them in something new, Give it a little bit of spirit, at least uh, and mm -hmm. have some reason that you're doing that beyond just marketing, because horror fans are not stupid fans. We we can see we can we can see when a studio's doing that and trying to pull the wool out of our eyes yeah. just to grab a few bucks from us. We don't just watch horror movies once or twice because eh, it's what was on. For a lot of horror fans, and we get into this discussion a lot of times in the podcast here, for horror fans, for a lot of us, this is, I don't want to call it a lifestyle, because that's a little bit too... I, I don't know that it's wrong, though. No? No. I, I think you could get away with saying lifestyle. It's, I mean, it, it, is there really a day that goes by that you're not thinking about books, about movies, about, about uh, you know, stories that you're trying to tell? I mean, to me, that's almost the definition of a lifestyle.
That's true. Okay. I, I was gonna I was gonna default to the to the less committal uh, passion. We're, we're very passionate about this, but yeah, that would work too. Just don't devolve it to hobby. <laughs> no, 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 no. But if if we're watching horror movies every day and it's at least like on our minds a little bit, sure. Why isn't lifestyle the right choice here? Cool. All right, that's the <laughs> word I'm committing to now. Lifestyle. But th- this is a lifestyle for us, and we can we can see when either a director's spirit isn't in it or a producer's spirit isn't in it. But that's another thing. I just kind of stumbled into this thought. That's another thing that threw me off on this is this is Feed Alvarez that helped produce and write and direct this. I love him. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't understand how he had his fingers in something that came out this shallow. Yeah. And again, the kills are fun. The kills are so fun in this. Um, it's just got no beating heart i guess well and you, you threw out the word spirit earlier and i think that's that's it is and and that, and i think that's one of the biggest reasons i feel like this is just a script that somebody had that they shoehorned leatherface into is the the kills are fun the kills aren't fun in the first one they're tense they're horrifying um and one thing we didn't mention in the first one is uh toby hooper was trying to get a pg reading rating for this movie And that's why, I mean, you you go through it, it's not very graphic. But the thing is that by shooting it the way he did and, you know, leaving a lot to the imagination, it came out truly horrifying, leaving, you know, uh, the the blood kind of off screen for the most part. I mean, you really only see, only one person gets hit with that chainsaw and it's, you're viewing it through trees. You don't get this clear picture. And of course, you know, part of that's going to be special effects, but... um, Although I wouldn't have mind if they actually ran the chainsaw through Franklin at that point in the movie. Uh, total, total you know, tangent there. But anyways, um, it's the fact that, and, and I know the sequels have already, you know, it, it's a slope. It didn't just go here with this new one, but it doesn't have to be graphic. And frankly, you know, that it, it, it kept it from capturing the spirit of the original. Like, all right, so let's talk the bus scene. Okay, that's the scene that got everybody's attention. And first of all, if we are truly harping on on Texas horror, then having our chainsaw massacre occur on not just a, a, a party bus, but a party bus that is like sterile hospital white is just an objectively weird choice. And yeah, it's fun. But again, what deaths in the first one are fun? I, it, it's... Like I said, you, you said, did you like this one? I said, yes and no. I thought it was a fun, entertaining movie. It just, it lacked a lot of the elements that I associate with this franchise, though. And I can see some of the things they were trying to do with it, uh, with, with the newer generation coming in and trying to gentrify the town. So all of the things that the, that the youths are touching they're trying to make them shiny. They're trying to make sure that none of the Texas grime and dirt is on it. So maybe that's our explanation for the bus. The The bus was supposed to represent the youths coming into town. So no, no, they're, they're too rich and they're too posh and they wouldn't have dirt on any of that. But it's just this really odd juxtaposition and tone from the first movie that worked so well to this thing that's supposedly a legacy movie. Uh, if we're going to throw that word around for it, then there has to be some elements of the movie worked into the legacy uh, of the next one besides just a mask and a chainsaw. Mm, yeah. I, 
I, I think the timing was weird too, where, I don't know, I, I, I guess you don't ever know Leatherface's age in the first one, but you just kind of assume that he wouldn't be that able-bodied uh, right. still, especially because, you know, in, in the first one, like he is very clearly a handicapped person and he doesn't have anybody, you know, to help him. Uh, over the course of these many years that have passed. Uh, so I, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I think it's I think it's a fun movie. I think there are elements like in the town itself is isolated. I think there are elements that play into the trope we're discussing uh, that, you know, somehow this conversation just turned into, is this a true, is this a true sequel? Does it capture the beating heart? And, you know, my answer is no, but I don't know that that necessarily impacts, you know, what it adds to the, subgenre of of texas horror yeah and that's fair i do appreciate your your uh willingness to try and add symbolism to what is essentially a shallow movie <laughs> you're, you're trying so hard to help them <laughs> yeah i don't know sure uh, there was a thought there i think maybe no i th- i think it's valid the whole gentrification thing and the whole you know i guess youth versus tradition I don't know if tradition is the right word, but I'll leave it. But again, I think it was a surface level. Hey guys, we need a theme. (laughs) Yeah, but okay. So here we go. Taking that theme and rolling with it. Last movie we wanted to talk about was X, which I think does a really good job of taking that theme of youth versus age and having fun with it first of all x is a really fun movie which i was not expecting when i walked into an a24 film mm. typically their stuff is just dark and morose and you just you need a bath after it but this was really fun certainly some gross scenes in it but for the most part they they played this like a very straight slasher movie but it has it seems like a lot to say about kind of youthful exuberance, uh, how that is perceived by common culture versus what it's like to grow old, um, the kind of the horrors of that, uh, of getting past your prime in life and kind of being on the waning, the waning ends of your years. I think Ty West did a really cool job of exploring a lot of that stuff in one very small, tightly knit movie. Before I throw it to you, I want to bring up one quote from Toby Hooper about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I think it's fun to try to apply that here. When asked what the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was about, Toby Hooper has this quote where he says, the movie's about meat. And we can take that in a very literal, straightforward sense in the fact that these are this is a cannibal family. They're eating people. So that's about meat. They're trying to find food and find sustenance where they can. And these, these outsiders just happened into them. Or another way I've seen it, interpre- seen it interpreted is that this is talking about the way that we treat humans as a country, as, as a society. We, we take these people, we send them to the meat grinder, and sometimes the nation doesn't give a crap about that. Uh, So he's writing this, he's filming this in the middle of the Vietnam War when a bunch of people are being sent off to Vietnam against their will, being chewed up by machine guns and spit out. So all of these vile characters that you don't like anybody in the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, they're just meat to be fed to the chainsaw grinder. I think it's fun to compare that versus X, where we've got two 
social groups that typically society treats as just meat. Uh, we've got some very old people who typically in society nowadays, you put them in a retirement home, you try to forget that they're there, get rid of your guilt until they're gone, and then they're gone. Okay, cool. And we've got a bunch of porn stars uh, who are making making a film that typically that industry gets ragged on a lot. Um, they, they're just they're just they're just meat. They're flesh bags. Let them go do whatever they're doing. I think thinking about Toby Hooper's quote in the context of all three of those arenas at once, there's got to be something to say about that in Texas horror. And I don't think I'm smart enough to be the person to put, that puts all of it together. But there's something here that I'm trying to get at. Maybe you can be the connective thread here. I was going to say, but you think I'm that smart. I appreciate the uh, <laughs> vote of confidence. Uh, you know what? I actually do have something to add on that. So <laughs> I'm yes, so glad perfect. because with all that setup, if I had nothing, I'd look like an utter ass. Um, <laughs> So I, I think it's totally valid to look at it in terms of the social group, the, the social um, groupings of older versus younger. Um, but let's let's talk about uh, the aspect of porn, because this is on the surface. Somebody could look at this and say, this is just an excuse to get boobs into the movie. Um, but it's not. Um it's this is set in the 1970s and you know given some of the static shots and the sparse music and just a, a lot of different things i mean there was no way that ty west wasn't paying some homages to texas chainsaw massacre there's just it's it's not even a question um but they make it a point to say that at this point in time uh, 1979 that Porn is still very much on the fringes of society. Anybody who, you know, partakes in it, buys a video is a pervert. And the, the gears are just kind of starting to change. But at the moment, like a lot of these people, they are just going to be meat. They are just going to be, you know, thought of as less than and um, derided by society. But here's where it's interesting is we go complete and utter reverse final girl on this. Uh, you know, your your stereotypical final girl is the virgin. Um, and in this movie, again, we go we go opposite that way. Your your final girl is not a virgin, not at all. Your final your final girl is a porn star. And in fact, the first person to die is the only person in that group of young people who doesn't have sex in the movie. Right. Um so I, in, in and of itself, I, yeah, <laughs> I think that is a commentary is, is saying that like, look, we've kind of, you know, the whole reason that trope exists is to almost, I don't know if I'd go as far as demonize sex, but certainly say that people with loose moral ethics are going to get it. Um, and to say, nope, we're going the opposite way. You know, uh, th this girl, th this girl is literally having sex on camera with her fiance, you know, standing behind the camera, cheering her on. And she's the one that's going to survive this, um, essentially wa watching the demise spoilers of the two calling them prudes definitely doesn't sound right after where the movie ends up going, but that's right. certainly how they're portrayed, um, at the beginning of the movie, the two prudish old, older people. Yeah. Uh, I like that a lot. Um, cause the movie, the movie does go out of its way to showcase the sex, to put it front and center, to have the characters talk about the sex and like 
why they don't feel ashamed of it. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's this whole monologue right in the middle of the film where all the all the main characters are sitting in a room and oh, what's her name? Jenna Ortega. Uh, mm-hmm. Jenna Ortega is asking them about this and tr- uh, we find out later on her wheels are kind of spinning and she's thinking she might want to get involved in this. But she's asking them like, isn't this sinful? Isn't this bad? And they're all the other characters, Kid Cudi included. Holy crap, Kid Cudi showed up in this movie. Yeah. Um, Kid, Kid Cudi's explaining back to her like, no, this is just the way we live. Like, it's free love. We we enjoy our time on this earth. All of these very like open-minded sorts of philosophies, which, you know, uh, take philosophy for what you will, but all of these very open-minded philosophies and they end up convincing Jenna Ortega to jump into the movie too. And the I, I love that part because the director is sitting here in the background trying to figure out how to work her in. Like there's nothing in this in the script. We couldn't, yeah. but she wants to be involved. So screw it. They, they, literally. Literally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's let her jump in. Yep. Um, and then it all goes down. Mama in bed. And I don't know what her name really is in the movie. So I'm just going to call Pearl. her Patrick Burke's name. Pearl, that's it. Because there's a potential prequel coming. Yeah, that's right. More than potential. It's already filmed. It is? They Well, they filmed it back to back. Basically, uh, I'm trying to think of the lead girl's name. Mia Goth. Awesome. They, he, he asked if she wanted to stick around. And that was, I don't know how to work it into theme and all that. But I thought it was, I, I did not realize till after I finished watching the movie that Mia Goth was the lead girl and the older woman that's fucking crazy because yeah that makeup job was pretty stellar i watched it twice and uh a way i watch a lot of my horror movies is my wife and i will watch them and we've got a friend who lives like 45 minutes an hour away that also watches horror movies a lot so whenever we've got a horror movie booted up we'll text her and be like hey you want a live text throughout this thing um so we'll we'll text reactions and be talking throughout it she texts us as the role, as the credits are rolling, something that alludes to the fact that Mia Goth is playing both of the characters. Yeah. And my wife and I both just paused the credits and rolled them back to the very first credit. Right. Like, there's no way she's wrong about this. That's a lie. That's oh shit, she's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you could tell that the um, whoever was playing the uh, the older woman was definitely makeuped up. Um, but no, it was a, it was a really excellent job. And I got a kick out of the fact that the, uh, actor who plays Howard, a lot of his acting credits were as orcs in the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh gosh. Okay. So other things to talk about here, Uh, the alligator scene Mm. was horrifyingly tense. I loved that watching Mia Goth swim in the lake and having the alligator coming up behind her and closer and closer and closer. My God, I'm so happy you said that because I talked to a couple people about this movie and they said, ah, the alligator scene. And I said, which one? And they, anybody I asked about it was talking about the one towards the end, the vicious one, the violent one. Yeah. Uh, and that was a cool scene, but it, it t- to me, it, the, the, if, you, if you're talking about how cool the alligator scene was, you're talking about the one shot from above with the alligator trailing, uh, I cannot think of the character's name, but Mia Goth. Um, yeah. And the fact that the shot itself is long enough that you're borderline doing mental math, you know, with how fast the alligator, if the alligator gets on a train to Chicago going 45 miles, um, can it catch up with her? And you're starting to think no, and then she just rests her her arms on the dock. Um, 
yeah, that was tension done right. I loved that scene. Yeah, no, the the alligator scene is not the one where it pops out and kills kills the blonde. That that is an alligator scene, sure, but that that yeah. has been done to death in movies. That's fine, like whatever. I couldn't breathe when it was coming after her in the lake and she was sitting there on the dock the first time. Yep. Um, yeah, that 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 was so well done. And uh, the other scene that really stood out to me in the movie, beyond all the kills, because all the kills were good and fun and fine, um, but the musical interlude. It has been a long time since a musical interlude felt justified to me in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the when they when they stop and I feel so stupid that I can't remember the blog. Landslide. Britney Snow, landslide, yeah. When Britney Snow picks up that guitar and she and Kid Cudi sing landslide together. That was a tightrope walk because that could have that could have been Cheese City and it it wasn't. It fit. And it was because it was the same um approximate part of the movie where they're having that conversation about this is you know, this is how we live. Um, and this is, you, you get one life, you have a limited amount of time. And just kind of the spirit of camaraderie in that, like you buy it, you know, if it came out of nowhere, no, that's ridiculous. And what is it doing in an A24 movie? Never mind a horror movie. <laughs> no, I bought it. I thought it was well done. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think I'm running out of thoughts on this movie, but I very much enjoyed it. We haven't talked about any of the kills yet, so I feel kind of negligent to just move on here. Um, Second half of the movie, any big thoughts here? Anything we should talk about? I thought the kills were all really good. Um, You know, you you start to, uh, the the cameraman uh, who is the first to go, you know, you start getting the sense uh, after after Pearl corners Mia and kind of feels her up that, you know, this woman has some form of dementia and she's a little horny um and so when she goes after the cameraman um you just kind of think that's where she's going and the knife comes out of nowhere and then she just keeps hacking away it's like it 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 bordered on uh this kind of like grotesque um that almost felt like uh it bordered on inauthentic like it just it his body hit the ground and she chipped away so much that he just became a sack of meat um, to tie back into our theme. Uh, and, and frankly, I thought most of the kills in this movie had that element of surprise. Um, you, you could make the argument that uh, Kid Cuddy's death by shotgun, you know, he wasn't coming back from that swamp, whether it was going to be the gun or something else. Right. Um, but I thought the only one that just felt a little too forecasted was the pitchfork in the eye. Um, that, and again, it was, it was fun. It was cool, but it almost felt like it belonged in a lesser horror movie. I, and I would agree with that. I would say this isn't a kill, but I would say the, the nail in the board that happened to him right before that was a better kill than the pitchfork Mm. the eye kill was. Um, because again, kind of like with the alligator, you had that moment of Ty West showcasing us what's about to happen what's about to happen and then just making us sit with it like we see that board with the nail sticking up we all know what that is we see him walking towards it barefoot and we just have to we just have to wait we have to watch it happen and ah then it goes in 
Isn't that funny how it seems like everything is either a complete and utter surprise or forecasted, you know, 100 feet away, and there doesn't seem to be any middle ground? Right. And I guess the art is figuring out which of those you need to do for each one. Do you, do you mm. need the shock factor with the kill? Like, I guess my wife was really surprised by the shotgun blast of Kid Cudi. Uh, I, I don't know why, because like you're saying, it felt very forecasted, but I guess... I don't, I don't know. E- even that one was a little bit startling. And then the alligator jumping clear out of the yeah. way and killing. Well, yeah. At, at that point, when, when, when Kid Cudi got it, um, we were still kind of bordering on whether or not the husband was, you know, mourning the lo- loss of his wife's like mental faculties or whether he was in on it. And that was kind of your you know, wh- whether you suspected one way or the other, that was your defining moment. So, I mean, you didn't necessarily know he was going to do that. I, it literally says earlier in the movie, the gun's not even loaded. So, you know, but uh, so, I mean, I could see that surprise. But at the same time, like I said, you you didn't necessarily know he was getting a shotgun to the chest, but you suspected he wasn't coming out of that swamp. Yeah. And I I did think of one more thing to kind of talk about here. Just the multitude of horror references scattered throughout this thing i think i think ty west had a lot of fun working those in i had a lot of fun picking them out like the uh the car sinking into the swamp just like psycho Mm. Uh, we had the the shining moment when jenna ortega's reaching out of the basement yeah trying to get the doorknob there's a lot of fun little moments like that that even if we just spoiled the entire movie for you like it's worth watching and kind of picking those out well, well except you spoiled the moments but yeah. <laughs> you just still watch it still watch it, still watch it. <laughs> um, so i guess let's go ahead and start bringing bringing all this back together uh let's, okay. let's put a bow on this so as far as texas horror is concerned do you have one of these or another that you would say is the best example of Texas horror? You know, I, I think it's got to be Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, you know, and one, right? for, for all the reasons we've talked about. But, you know, the, the, the biggest reason that I think that one stands above is, uh, you know, number one, I, I said that as much as Kin nails it, technically it happens in Alabama, that might disqualify it automatically. But the fact that, you know, your second act in the book, uh, almost 100 pages of it happens in Ohio. Uh, there's the fact that um, with uh, the, you know, the, with, the, with the newer Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it just it didn't have as much of the spirit as the first one. And I really think that it lost, um, you know, the, the heat, the grime, the stuff like that. Uh, not that that's the only thing that makes it, but it just, you know what? I'll be honest. I just can't make that the winner. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not in a good enough movie to say, but this is the, you know, paramount example. And, and with X, I think that could be it, but I also think that as much as it is a standalone and interesting movie, it's also such an homage to the movies that came before it that you can't say, well, this is this is the peak example of the subgenre when, you know, it's fun and interesting and it stands on its own, even if you've never seen another movie, but it's definitely paying you know, uh, tribute to those who came before. Yeah. And I, 
I think I've definitely got the same top two as you. And I think I'm going to lean towards agreeing with you too, that the original TCM is just, it, it is such a classic, such a cornerstone of the horror legacy uh, for a reason. It's got its problems. It has lots of problems. Uh, but as far as kickstarting its own subgenre, as far as, being the standard bearer for some of these things we've been talking about the whole episode, I think it's unparalleled um, faults, faults put to the side. Yeah. And, and I mean, even just the fact that all four items that we talked about, or rather three of the non uh, 1974 movies that we talked about all build on the 1974 movie, you know, whether it's spiritual successor, actual successor, you know, legacy sequel or homage, they all exist in their form because of the original. And to me, that kind of makes it win by default. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is so iconic that it's inseparable from everything that comes afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of building off of that idea, though, uh, final question, and I'm trying to ask everybody something, <laughs> something in this vein here. Uh, let's say you wanted to make a Texas horror book, movie, TV show, what have you, anything like that. Uh, you get approached by a producer, you get approached by a publisher, they're going to give you just this millions of dollar open check to do, you know, whatever project you want, just make the best Texas horror kind of a project that you can. What would you make? What's the short pitch here? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I loved that. What's going to catch your idea is you're getting a blank check to do what you want. And yet this subgenre, I, I mean, it's such a low, it's such a low budget subgenre, you know, throwing, throwing millions of dollars. You know, you could, you could get Brad Pitt in your movie, but is that going to make it, you know, embody the genre? Um, and, you know, I, I, I love this question and I wanted to, instead of trying to think, well, what would, you know, take these tropes and make it the most commercially successful thing? I wanted to kind of think of what I would be the most interested in uh, reading. And um, there is a book called Knock'em Stiff by Donald Ray Pollock. Um, and if you don't know that book, you might know, he also wrote one called The Devil All the Time, which was a Netflix movie with Tom Holland, Robert Pattinson, some other people. Um, Knock'em Stiff is a bunch of interconnected short stories that takes place in uh, kind of rural Ohio. Um, and I would love to move that to Texas and explore not just one family of Leatherfaces, but basically an entire community. Um, and I think what I would want to do with it, one thing we didn't mention that I think is also a really common, commonly avoided, I guess would be a better way to put it. There's not a lot of supernatural in this kind of horror. Uh, it generally tends to be human monsters. And my, I, I, when I write something, I, I have trouble not going at least quasi supernatural. So what I would want to do is I would want to write about a town. Uh, I want to explore these outside of the law, outside of society, people 
And I wouldn't mind bringing some ghosts and stuff to just kind of stir them up a little bit. I think that would, even if I was the only person who that interested, it would interest me and fuck everybody else because I got a blank check. (laughs) Love it. No, I think that's a, that would be a really fascinating wrinkle if, if, if Leatherface or the Sawyer family or anybody else is carving through bodies and eating them and they, they turn around and there's ghosts. Like what? Are you, what are you even doing that? Moment? Do you stop? Well, that's that's, that's a different type of aftermath than Ken. But I mean, it's <laughs> whether or not you believe you're the villain in your own story. I mean, you've you've got to kind of live with that. Especially like if we go back to the Merrill family, like these are these are biblical people, and they've obviously misinterpreted some things in there. But they, you know, they believe in morality, and if you, you know, desecrate a body, then I mean, this. The, you got to believe to some extent that uh, bad juju is coming for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like we've talked about, like with Texas as a setting, there's multiple different aspects of Texas. Part of it is that kind of Southeastern region is very swampy and there's like voodoo stuff um, mm. stemming from Louisiana and New Orleans. So maybe we can tie that in. That's cool. I like it. I like the voodoo. I didn't even consider that matter. Yeah. Yeah, or like just just spirits in general. I I default to voodoo when I'm thinking of New Orleans, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, ghosts and supernatural stuff. Like it, it it can all kind of float in there. Cool. Uh, for my money, I want to try to find a way to work a city into all this. I think with Texas, one of the big, um, well, everything's big. It's Texas, uh, but but one of the big things that the Texas horror properties have kind of missed out on is they have all of these big, very iconic cities down there from Dallas uh, mm. to, to Austin and Austin being so weird, um, intentionally so, lovingly so. Uh, but I don't quite know how you take what's happening in these isolated farmlands and you transplant it into a city, but I think there could be a way to make that work. I'm just not the right person to do it. Like a, like a predator two of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna, you have a blank check, so you can hire the uh, you know greatest creative minds to right. figure out exactly what to do with it. Or I'll just get you back on the show, and I'll pitch some big broad thing that you actually somehow make a make a good answer out of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so- I, I love it though. I mean, it. I think it would be very interesting, and it would almost be. <laughs> I'm so sorry to say this, but it would almost be like Jason goes to space. You're basically taking something that the subgenre is so dependent on isolation and, you know, grime and um, uh, disrepair. Uh, and you're bring and you're you're taking away all of those elements, but trying to keep the spirit of it alive. It's one of those things. It would be hard as hell, but if you pulled it off, it, it, if it was pulled off, it could be really interesting and give that, you know, genre uh, kind of a nice boost in the arm because, you know, we, we have mentioned some other Southern horrors and, uh, you know, there are other examples of Texas horror, but you're not going to have as many to choose from as if we were doing slashers or if we were doing haunted houses because it is kind of a, a, a very um, intimate subgenre. To a degree, there's only so much you can do with it without, you know, people saying, "Well, you know, it's not an homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre." Now you're literally just ripping it off, and we're not interested in that. Right. We would 
we would constantly be in danger of making the new Netflix Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There you go. Yep. Um, die Hard Six. Yeah, Die Hard Six. Uh, <laughs> live harder, die harder, whatever it was called. That was definitely one of them. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think that just about does it for this episode. Um, one more time. Uh, Brennan, where can anybody that's been listening to this episode catch up with you, interact with you, find your books? Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram uh, much more often on Twitter at Brennan LaFaro. Nice and easy for you. BrennanLafaro.com. Uh, I've got a monthly newsletter, BrennanLafaro.substack.com. Uh, you Google my name, the things come up. Uh, as I said, uh, Slattery Falls is out as we speak. Um, you can, it, it's a little more difficult to find on Amazon with the new paperback because the old one is still kind of up there. But if you want to buy that and, you know, deprive Amazon of all their extra copies so that the new version shows up, I would appreciate that. Uh, Noose is out September 4th. It was uh, a hell of a time to write. Um, and, uh, early readers, blurbs, stuff like that are enjoying it. So I hope that, uh, people will also like it after it comes out. Um, and like I said, I've got sequels to uh, Slattery Falls coming out later this year and next year. And I've got a supernatural slasher coming out late 2023 um, as well. And then I'm gonna rest. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I, I think this is the first I've heard of the supernatural slasher, but I, that is right up my alley. So I'm excited for that one. Cool. Yeah, I mean, if we had three hours, uh, we could probably have worked that into the conversation because that's um, that that takes place in uh, the Southwest and it, like it, it's uh, oh I, I I said it's a supernatural slasher, but it's also a motel book. I pitched it to the publisher as um, The Shining meets Psycho, um, so that is very dependent on that isolation as well. That you know uh, that really makes a lot of these books and movies we've been talking about for the last hour and a half work. Boom. Perfect tie-in. Uh, so everybody's marking their calendars for that now. Uh, <laughs> well, Brennan, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast to talk to you. Yeah, my pleasure, man. To everybody listening, thank you so much for joining us also. Please don't forget to like or subscribe or spin in a circle while you rev your chainsaw at the streaming surface of your choosing. Uh, we'll see you next time. I'm William Sterling. This has been another episode of the Killer Mediums podcast. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go.